Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Hi, it's great to be here. Good afternoon. It's uh, my first time in Arizona, hopefully not the last time, so thank you for... uh... Having us. Thank you. Thank you. So in 1989, Francis Fukuyama came out with a speech. The speech was titled, um, The End of History. And it was somewhat prophetic. It was an interesting uh, um, speech that he gave. And basically what he was saying was that the fall of the Soviet bloc was imminent. And with the fall of the Soviet Union, um, so he claimed, we will see a rise of liberal liberal democracies. We'll see and will kind of usher in a time, an end of time period, an end of days period, because the major wars will be over, there won't be that big political um, uh, fight between the two centers of the world, right, the Soviet Union and America, and really have a time of prosperity and kind of normalize life. Francis Fukuyama. Yes, in 1981. It turned into a book, it was wildly successful, it was very popular, and if you can imagine for a second what it felt like to be in that room, Right, when he first gave the speech, it was very promising. This is before the fall of the Soviet bloc, so there was some kind of aspirational sense there. Um, but, but once it, it kind of fulfilled itself, there's probably a lot of excitement generated. Right? Are we really facing, are we entering um, this new era? Now, of course, in hindsight, we know that it was somewhat prophetic, not entirely. We are still, a lot of things that need to happen and improve in the world, but, but it is true that you know, he, was, he was right to see the fall of the Soviet bloc. And when we read the Parsha we just read, this Shabbat, and if we look at the Parsha that's coming up this weekend, Kitavo, there's a sense of end of times for the Jewish people, end of history for the Jewish people. If we read the five books of Moses in a linear way, right, from the creation of the world through Abraham and Noah, the sons, everything was leading up to this moment, this culmination where the Jewish people would end their travel and their journey, which started in Egypt and end in the Promised Land. And then what would happen? What would happen in the end of the parade? What would happen in the end when they reached it? Right, the Gemara, the Talmud in Nedarim, um, page 22 on the bottom says that if the Israelites wouldn't sin, we have only would have received the five books of Moses and the book of Joshua. Right? The Talmud says this. The Talmud says thousands of years later, we wouldn't have received anything but the five books of Moses. And it's a very powerful statement. Can you imagine what it would look like if the Jews, the Israelites, never left the Promised Land? If we've been there continuously for 4,000 years, would we still be a nation? Would we still be here? Would we be together? Would have Judaism evolved the way it evolved? Right? So that moment before entering the promised land was really a, a, a turning point. Right? From that perspective, from that moment, that's what it seemed like. That was the direction in which we were going. And so how did the Jewish people prepare for it? How did they come to think about it? What was the framework? Did they have any rules, any guidelines? Anything grandiose, anything dramatic? No. The answer is no. If you look at the Parsha, the list of psukim, the list of laws that Moses gives to the people, it's quite mundane. It's quite simple. Build a fence for your 
rooftop so people don't fall. If someone loses some kind of property, make sure you return to them. Really simple, mundane laws of regulating pedestrian life. And in a way, that's very appropriate for a nation that's about to enter the stage, which is kind of entering history in a way that would, would end things for them, right? Just normal, regular life. And there's nothing dramatic about it. There's nothing dramatic about it. And 4,000 years later, we know that that wasn't the end of our history, right? Far from it. Um, we are still here. We're here in Phoenix. There's a strong, vibrant community here in North America. There's a strong, vibrant country in Israel. And that moment in time, that, that feeling that we have now, right, which is a new, new stage, a new evolution in our people's story, is in a way also introduces this idea of an end of history moment. Because if we think about what Jews have aspired for throughout history for so long, right, if you asked any one of them, this would surpass their wildest dreams, right, to have a strong, vibrant, sovereign country in the Middle East, and also a very strong and vibrant Jewish diaspora, North America and other countries. We out, we out grew our wildest dreams. And so this moment, this moment in time, introduces a new part, perhaps, in our unfolding story of the Jewish people. And so what are the mindsets? What are the things that we need to look at when we enter this phase? What are things you have to think about? Now, again, of course, things aren't perfect. There's lots of work. There's much to do, both here and in Israel. But at the same time, this vibrancy is something that we've never, ever seen before. And so if we go back to our parashot, to our, what we just read last week, what we're going to read next week, and quite frankly, till the end of the book of Deuteronomy, if you look into the language that these used, that Moses uses, right, he uses to, to give and to teach and give these this framework, there's a subtle reminder of what are some of the things that we have to think about. So on top of just the rules, there's something else. And if you look at the language, a word or a phrase that appears and reappears and repeats itself is achicha and re'echa, your brother, your fellow. Every interaction between people of this nation is recorded as such between brothers and very close and very strong and, and close kinship. So that's, that's one, one idea that Moshe passes on to the people. Even though we're ending our phase as a tribe, a nomadic tribe through the desert, and we're entering this, entering this stage of sovereignty in, in the land of, of Israel, we still have to remain and, and maintain that sense of, of family, that familial condition in which we're familiar. That's number one. Number two, we see that all of the tribes, the 12 tribes, are part of the unfolding story. No one's left behind, regardless of where they're going to end up, what side of the Jordan River they're going to be on. All the tribes are brought in, and they're part of this, this unfolding story. So we have to maintain the sense of unity, right? this brothership, this fellowship, this unity. And, but, but maintaining that structure of tribes also adds another, or, or introduces another compelling message that we have to keep in mind is that we have to maintain our diversity, our diversity of opinions, of customs, of backgrounds, of strengths, right? The tribes didn't become meshed into what? Sorry, meshed into one glob of people. They maintained their family connections, they're separate, they had their local uh, leadership, their local pr uh, prophets, their local generals. And so under this 12 tribe structure, they still maintain this unity. So these three ideas that are brought forward in the texts, in the rules, number one, using the language of brothers and fellows, keeping that close in the family. Number two, keeping everybody involved regardless of where they live physically and what side of the Jordan, the Jordan River are they in. Are they in the promised land or right next to the promised land? That's number two. And number three, maintaining this sense of diversity. So that's the frame I want to use or we want to use today um, as we think about how we are moving into this new era of the Jewish people in which we have a strong homeland and a very strong and vibrant diaspora. 
So we're going to jump into the next, next portion of, so for the podcast, uh, AJ, you know, I put the thing back on. He told me to say when to go again. I, I just want to say thank you to, ra- to the rabbi for inviting us because this was an experiment for us. Amitai and I, again, like I said, we're getting out there. We're putting this all over the country. Um, and we wanted to make sure that we had an opportunity to try it out somewhere. So, um, Reb Shmuley, thank you for giving us this opportunity. Look, we, we are here because we care about Israel. We all care about the future of the Jewish peoplehood. It's a beautiful day outside. You've chosen to spend the day inside learning, discussing. I want to be a little provocative in this part of the afternoon. I want to throw a few figurative hand grenades out there and have a discussion going, but I want to set it up by sharing a story with you. You heard in my bio that I, before I came to the JCC, I was at APAC. I was running the Pacific Northwest of APAC for about 14 years. I remember in 2000, being in my office, which is overlooking Market Street, which is the main artery in the heart of San Francisco, and, and I hear a, a big rally going on, some big protest. Now, this is San Francisco, so of course there's a protest every other week. But this one sounded different. They were chanting from the river to the sea, right? Palestine will be free from the river to the sea. So we looked outside, Palestinian flags waving. I went down there to check it out. They were burning Israeli flags. This was something like I had never seen before. And this is 2000, right? The end of 2000, roughly the start of the second intifada. And they're burning Israeli flags in downtown San Francisco. And I remember vividly that this was the moment in time when I thought that the Jewish community in America started to sever a little bit because the Jewish community in America started to be a little bit more vocal about how Israel was fighting this war. They started to be a little bit more critical. Now, you can argue that, well, that happened back in 81. You could argue that Sabra Shatila. We can argue that there were different moments, but there was something that I felt was inherently different in 2000 with the Second Intifada, right? Because it was not just the way that Israel was, was treating Palestinians or handling the Second Intifada, but it was also the same time that Israel started debating these who is a Jew laws in the Knesset, remember? And it was, it was only going to be the Orthodox rabbinate that was going to side with conversions were allowed by, by Jews outside of Israel if they were not Orthodox. So you had this conflagration of these two things that really upset American Jewry. So the folks who had been critical of Israel on the ends of the spectrum had started to creep inside, right? And it was these two issues that built kind of this perfect storm. And what you ended up seeing is you ended up seeing American Jewry starting to gauge its relationship with Israel based only on the two items that we disagreed with most, the occupation and the Rabbanut. It was being boiled down to these two issues. And folks were forgetting about the rest of the great, what Israel exists to do for the Jewish people. At the same time, you see Israelis looking at American Jews wagging their fingers at us saying, well, you're not even going to be Jewish in a generation or two because of assimilation, because of anti-Semitism. You have Israeli ministers saying intermarriage is the next Holocaust. You have, over the last two decades, it getting ratcheted up. And now you're seeing partisanship creep into the U.S.-Israel relationship in a way that we hadn't seen before. You're seeing young people, our children and our grandchildren, flirting with BDS, you're seeing them get involved with these organizations like If Not Now that are disrupting birthright trips. And we could talk about these organizations, what they stand for, what they're doing. I hope we will have a discussion about that. But you're starting to see terms like intersectionality creep into our mainstream discussions so that when you have young people who want to be a part of the Women's March, but folks who aren't such big fans of Israel are standing up there organizing the Women's March, or, or young people who want to be part of the Black Lives Matter movement, and there's an anti-Zionist platform in the Black Lives Matter. This idea of intersectionality, how do you associate yourself with other causes if there's going to be a litmus test? 
I remember when I was at APAC, there was an organization called SF War, SF Women Against Rape. Okay, it was a rape crisis center in, in, in San Francisco. And on their intake form, if you came to say you were a victim of rape, you had to fill out an intake form. And on the intake form, you had to declare whether you were a Zionist or not. On this form, to be treated as a rape victim. Okay, fortunately, our local Jewish Community Relations Council, which is amazing, did a great job and went to, went to battle and, and fixed that. But that's what was happening in the early 2000s, right? And now we have reached, give me a few more minutes, then we'll have a discussion. We're, now we've reached what, what we think is this tipping point moment where we think that if we don't act now to transcend our differences, we could have a divorce between our two communities, the Israeli Jewish community and the American Jewish community. And we think we have an answer to this, what we're calling Zionism 3.0. Why 3.0? Because Zionism 1.0, Z1, that was the Zionism of the pioneers. The first quotes that you read, those were the early pre-1948 Zionists, right? The ones who were building the World Zionist Congress. It was Herzl and his colleagues. It was the one who said, look, we need a place because pogroms, anti-Semitism, we're never going to be able to be ourselves unless we have our own free state, our own sovereignty. That's Zionism 1.0. 2.0 begins in 1948. May 14th, Ben-Gurion announces beginning of the state of Israel. 2.0 is the Zionism of the builders, the second set of thinkers that you read about, right? And that Zionism was defined by the following ethos. Diaspora negation. Have you heard this term before? Diaspora negation. In other words, the only way to be a good Jew is to make Aliyah. And for those of us who decided not to make Aliyah, we have to support Israel, unequivocally. We don't get to have a say. We have a stake, but no say, because we're not paying taxes, we're not serving the army, our kids aren't being blown up in pizzerias and discotheques. We don't get a say. We send money, we offer political support, but Zionism 2.0 was about diaspora negation. It was about the rich American uncle, right? We were the rich American uncle. We supported him. And something happened around 2000 where, as Amitai said, you have this moment, first time ever in Jewish history. Now, now think about this. In our long thousands and thousands and thousands of years of Jewish history, this is the first time ever where there's a strong Jewish homeland and a strong Jewish diaspora here in America. It's never existed where there's both. There's been one or the other. But now we have these two strong centers of life, and we're talking past each other. We're making the whole relationship about the Palestinians and the Rabbanut, right? And in Israel, they're looking at us going, what do you have to offer? They don't understand the vibrancy of American Jewish life and what we have to offer, right? So in Israel, they have resurrected Hebrew, a dead language, and they have brought that into the mainstream, right? You have novels and newspapers and rock stars singing in Hebrew. They've taken Jewish themes to put them in technology and art, and culture in all new ways. They're running a whole country by the Jewish calendar. You ever been there during Yom Kippur? You know this, right? Israel has resurrected Judaism in a way that we could have only dreamed. Now here in America, what we're doing to Jewish life is also unbelievable. We have these secular Shabbat dinners that are taking place all over the country, groups like One Table. You have the ability to democratize Jewish text study with Safaria that's putting every single Jewish text online. Right? You have the ability to engage young people, whether it's birthright trips or whether it's Moisha House. What American Jewry is doing is saying, you're not just Haredi or Chiloni, meaning you're not just Orthodox or secular, which is what it looks like in Israel. We're saying, look at this huge spectrum in between. So we have to find a way to offer that to Israel, while Israel has to find a way to offer what it has, it has to us. But right now, we're speaking past each other. This is the idea of Zionism 3.0. Now, I want to be clear. This is not about whitewashing our differences. Right? This is not about saying we have to have a uniform way of looking at this. This is about unity, not uniformity. Okay? I want to say it again. It's about unity, not uniformity. We have always disagreed. 
Since the beginning of time, we're Jews, right? It might take the Mashiach to come and convince us to stop disagreeing, but I'm not even sure about that, right? We've already seen that once before. He's the Mashiach, he's not the Mashiach. I'm guessing we will probably be disagreeing again. But since the beginning, Jacob and Esau, right? The twins? Arguing. Do you know the famous scholars Hillel and Shammai? You've heard of these scholars? You know they disagreed about everything? Even how to light the Hanukkah candles? Did you know this? Shammai said we should light them all the first night and go one less. Now, why do we often side with Hillel? The scholars will tell us it's because often they, he let Shammai go first. He acted like a mensch. He listened to his argument first. Right? So that tells us something. And even in our darkest hour, in the, during the Shoah, during the Holocaust, you had Jews who sat on the Jewish councils, thinking this is the best way to save Jewish lives. And you had Jewish partisans fighting in the forests, thinking this is the best way to save Jewish lives. And they hated each other. In our darkest moment, we couldn't come together. And then you have the foundation of the Jewish state, the Irgun and the Haganah. Right? I'll tell you a story. My father-in-law was, was born in 1938 Palestine. His family had come from Saloniki, Greece, a very conservative Greek Sephardi family, very much supporters of the Irgun, of Menachem Begin, of Zev Jabotinsky, who you read. Right? He remembers standing on the beach in, in Tel Aviv watching the Altalena get sunk. The Altalena was the Haganah's, uh, I mean, the Irgun's ship with weapons. And David Ben-Gurion is sitting on the beach saying, turn your weapons over to us or we're going to sink the ship, right? And this is a much-needed ship of weapons and soldiers <laughs> right after the Holocaust. And Ben-Gurion's Haganah sank the Irgun's Altalena ship. My father-in-law remembers standing, being a nine, ten-year-old boy watching this on the beaches. And yet he went on to marry an Ashkenazi girl whose mom was uh, Czech, father was German, Big Ben-Gurion and Haganah support. Talk about intermarriage at the time. Let me just tell you, right? You have letters being exchanged between Ben-Gurion and Jabotinsky where they're saying to each other, I will reach out to my, my hand in friendship to you. These guys were on the opposite ends of this. But in that moment, they recognized there was something greater. And what we're trying to do, what Amitai and I are trying to do, what Zionism 3.0 is saying, let's recognize that we have differences of opinion. We're always going to have it. I hope around this table we're going to have a conversation. You're going to hear each other's differences of opinion. We're not trying to iron out the differences of opinion, but we're trying to say let's elevate. When we came together as a community in the, in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s to rescue the Jews of the former Soviet Union, we did not look at them in the eye and say, what are your politics? We did not say, how religious are you? We just embraced them and said, brothers and sisters, let's go. Right? We didn't. We didn't look at them. Now we are. In, in Israel, you're looking at some of the Russian um, players. But the reality was at that moment, we saw them as brothers and sisters. So that's the analogy, that's the metaphor I want to put out to you today. That we're brothers and sisters, as Amitai started with his Devar this morning. This is about brotherhood and sisterhood. Not even marriage, by the way, because you can get divorced if you're in marriage. Right? So I'll end with the following, and then we're going to have a conversation. Last year's Z3 conference happened during Hanukkah. So we launched the movement with a symbol, which is a five-sided dreidel. Okay, why? Because how many of you know that there's a, raise your hand if you, if you know that there's a different dreidel in Israel that there is in America. So not all of you know this. Now think about this. Ours is Neskadol Hayah Sham. Theirs is Neskadol Hayah Po. Right? If that doesn't embrace, I mean, if, that, that is the epitome of the differences of our two peoples, right? So we created a five-sided dreidel. Neskadol Hayah Sham and Po. These great miracles are indeed happening here and there. So with your help, with our ability to launch this movement, we can truly rise above and transcend our differences and build a Zionism 3.0. Thank you. Let's have a conversation.